You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim, Ir HaKadosh. Sam, you know, uh, we in the Jewish world are very cognizant that we have uh, entered the Hebrew month of Kislev, which, of course, uh, will end with the celebration of the festival of Hanukkah. Uh, it's, it's different this year, of course, than it is in many other years where uh, the holidays line up very close to the Christian uh, days of celebration of Christmas and New Year. However, Hanukkah is in full mode. And it's interesting, I, I think in our lifetime, we've seen uh, a little bit of a transformation occur. And I'm not saying that this is a great sociological uh, observation that I'm making, but we've seen that whereas Hanukkah gelt, real money, was constant, was, that was a constant. Of course, there's still people to give you an envelope, but the idea of giving gelt and uh, giving out um, uh, money to children was quite common. It was interesting how that when people say Hanukkah gelt today, I think the children of today aren't thinking of money. They're thinking about little pieces, well, of chocolate wrapped in silver foil that somehow represent that gelt. And it got me thinking that, you know, the, the, we know that chocolate is, is, has constantly been a, uh, an addictive force since it was introduced, however, they came from South America and was processed as cocoa, but it's been constant. And as much as inflation will go up, people still buy chocolates. And the reason is, of course, because of the comfort that it gives people, the incredible sugar high, the sense of, uh, uh, it's almost like you're um, luxuriating in that decadent taste and, and, and I guess, although I don't know if that occurs when you open up these uh, uh, poorly manufactured Hanukkah gelt, but I think the idea itself of finding comfort within these foods, whether it's chocolate or you hear sometimes people will say they had such a bad day, they had to go out and buy, uh, can I mention their name, Ben and Jerry's, a pint, and somehow open it up and dig into it and somehow they feel better afterwards. And I will tell you, I have many, many friends who tell me that that is their number one way of dealing with frustrations that come up in interpersonal relationships and others. Yeah. In other words, they can just turn to that, uh, that piece of chocolate, that brownie, whatever it is. And somehow, even though they feel it's putting inches on their waistline, it gives them something. It gives them a comfort. It gives them something that allows them a little bit of a buoy in a uh, in a churning sea of difficulty. And somehow that's how they can manage. So I know that this is. It's almost like Shmuel. I'm throwing you the 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 slowest softball you could ever hit, because there's you don't need to adapt. This is completely in your wheelhouse when we're talking about the oral stage of satisfaction, tell us if you think that this uh, attitude is something that people should learn how to curb and eliminate, or should they give into it? Go ahead, Shmuel. Okay, so the, the short way to do this podcast is just say no. There's no reason to curb it, but okay, but of course, you know, it is a soapbox, so let me try to just pick it apart some. Um, you're 
you were intuitively or basically poetically trying to um, give some justification as to why it is um, eating chocolate is somehow pleasing or makes you feel good or whatever. And um, you could say it's intrinsic. It's, it's not intrinsic. It's not intrinsic. I mean, there is a, we do need to eat. And when you eat, you feel no longer hungry. But just in terms of a basic psychological lingo, um, there are um, various reinforcers around. There are various kinds of associations we make. For instance, um, when you're hungry, you're upset. At least, let's say, at the very early stage of life, you're hungry, you're upset, you're uncomfortable, then you get food, and then suddenly you're not upset anymore. So it doesn't take much to understand from a conditioning point of view that food will be something that you use to change from being upset to being not upset. So essentially, when you're really little, an infant at that stage, you don't have much of a theater of operations. Like if they would say, why is a little kid, a one-week-old or one-month-old or a three-month-old upset, it usually has to do with just some physical discomfort. And food is often that. The lack of food is often that. There could be others. There could be pain. Um, there could be temperature, but there aren't that many variables around. But essentially what happens in terms of conditioning is that since food happens to get rid of the discomfort around hunger, that is seen as something that can change discomfort into comfort. Now, you could well say that a hug would do it, and you could well say that um, a blanket would do it because they would take care of um, some touching needs, which kind of soothes you because that's more primal or even temperature. But yeah, so that's true as well. For some people, a hug can do it. But for almost anybody, everybody goes through a lot of hunger during their regular cycle. Most crying of normal babies is food related. So that becomes a, a general reinforcer. So it makes sense that we, when we are upset, and it doesn't have to be about hunger, the association that comes up is that food will make me non-upset. That works, and it's real, and there's no reason to try to knock that out of your system. The only reason to try not to indulge, so to speak, is when that's the only method you can use to get unupset, and that when you do use it as a method, you don't use it in a moderate way, you use it in an excessive way, and then it gets you into other kinds of trouble. I just wanted a comment. You were contrasting um, the chocolate um, Hanukkah um, gifts with money that people give. Why do you think money is so satisfying to people? Where does that come from? Okay, and that comes merely from another six months developmentally from the stage we were just talking about. And it's called, um, based on the physiological um, function, it's called the anal stage. But uh, I... We can call it the anal stage just in terms of this discussion because that's the stage where people often get toilet trained or are concerned with excrement. You know, you did you did you poop yet? Did you not poop yet? But essentially, what happens in the anal stage is that um, the notion is, um, I okay to be just try to go to to being a one year old. Um, I have stuff. 
I don't have stuff. I had stuff and I gave stuff. And when I gave stuff, they were very excited about it and everybody cheered and whatever. So then what happens at that particular stage is that having, not having, mine, not mine. That's the common things if you deal with a typical two-year-old. Yes, mine, not mine. Yes, no, I want you to do it. You're not the boss of me. I'm going to do it on my own. It's me, it's you. Those are anal issues and the um, fixation, or let's say the, the satisfier during the anal stage is basically stuff, okay? It generalizes from <laughs> just diaper stuff to any kind of stuff. And it's, it's quite true from a, a psychodynamic point of view that any, um, shall we say, non-utilitarian um, drive to try to have stuff, to have money, to get rich, to have possessions, to show them off, is just a mere adaptation of what goes, goes on during toilet training. And again, I don't want to vilify people because next to food, this is quite a, an issue of contention that we get used to in terms of reinforcement. Um, quite a few people, when they get upset, they run to the bathroom. Right. And it, it's um, if you had to do statistically the bathroom runners versus the chocolate runners, I think you would have a pretty dead heat there. So let me just stop you for a second. As, sure. as, as a layman, because like I said, I, this these questions were, were, were such an easy hit for you. You didn't have to. I could have I could have asked you these questions in the middle of the night. And I know you could have uh, given us pretty much the same answer. But I just want to ask you something just for my clarification. I understand that the, the child is applauded and he feels good about himself that he was able to uh, go to the bathroom on his own and the parents are so excited. But isn't it it's still sort of counter because they are applauding the fact that you you push something out of your system and the, and the enjoyment of knowing you have money is that now I have something that I can use later. I can use it for power. I can now buy stuff. I feel good. Uh, how does that really relate to the idea of you're able to get something out of your bowels into a toilet? I don't see exactly the connection. Okay, you're getting very literal, and I'd like to make it a little bit less literal. Many two-year-olds have the biggest satisfaction when they don't do what they're supposed to do, when they do know. What are the terrible twos? What are the tantrums all about? The tantrums are push me around, don't push me around. And just as many kids feel satisfied when they comply with being pushed around and are called a good boy or a good girl versus when they don't comply. So having, not having, just that entire uh, um, construct, that field of functioning is an area where a lot of reinforcements can come in and not necessarily the way you see it. I mean, there are people in the, uh, who are fixated in the, in, the, in the oral stage who are crazy dieters and they get a meridic kick out of that. And that itself. So again, instead of being um, like a tit for tat, just understand that that area is the area of reinforcement and how the reinforcement works out is a secondary question. Uh, okay, so so I think what you're what you're getting at, and of course, you know, you're so steeped in it, it's almost like you have to explain Aleph Bay's comments Aleph Oh. Yes, I understand. No, but, because, but, but I, I guess the way I'm processing this as 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 a person who, you know, is, is, is trying to tease it out from you, here's what I, I guess I'm hearing. 
that because what the reinforcement is, you are something, you are significant, not just you're not hungry anymore, but you are significant and, and you're accomplished. Therefore, as a person ages and they realize the value of money and they realize intellectually what money can do for them and how valuable it is, it allows them to go purchase things and have things, that mental association is connected with the other validation that they had, the first primal validation that they had yes. when they were in the bathroom. So even though- But, it's, but the it, validation may well, have be a val- may well have been a validation of defiance, which gives them- a sense of identity. That's the first time you have identity. Right, right, right. But another thing, I understand. You can just step back a little bit and think of this, not in terms of tit for tat. He did give, I was hungry, I was not hungry. Let's just think about areas of reinforcement, whether positive or negative. Hunger, satisfying hunger is the first area of reinforcement. If you link it also, uh, again, at a lower level, hugging and temperature. It's just, Physical discomfort in terms of what I need and don't. And then the next one is in terms of having, not having, which then dovetails into I am my own person. I am not my own person. And then the problem, but if you want to be really like, shall we say, literal, you can say that money is actually just a sublimated form of feces, if you want to think. But that's getting very, very, very primitive. And, and some, some Freudians do talk like that. You don't have to. You can reduce it to object relations, which means what is the function of this in terms of your developing as a, a oh. being independent from just something that's morphed into one body with your supplier. Yeah. And this is a, a, fairly, a fairly important thing. Okay, let's I, I, talk I, about this. Let's just understand reinforcement is the building block of all behavior and all motivations. So to say, okay, this is a reinforcer, but that's base. I'm going to get rid of it because really I should be able to feel good about myself just by feeling good. That's a fiction. You never feel good just by deciding to feel good. What you do is pick on some other reinforcer, which is not as, shall we say, analyzed out. And it sounds a little bit more ethereal because you need to spend like a couple of thousand dollars on the couch to figure out just how is it that when you solve a certain question or a certain problem, or you come to a certain realization that you feel good, and you think that's so much more um, at a higher level than eating some food or running to the bathroom. Love Dafka. It's just (laughs) some reducing. Let me just mention one other thing. Um, There are people who... um, um, let's say, actually get a stomachache when they're upset. That's just a disguised way of the ego saying, hey, Sam, let's go back to basics here. The fact that you're getting this interview and you're getting the job or you're getting the the spouse that you wanted that you're getting divorced, that gets reduced to discomfort. Well, don't remember what we do when we're not comfortable? We run to the bathroom, some of us. Some of us go for food. So I'm saying it doesn't mean that people think to themselves, oh, I'm getting upset here. I remember the good old days when I used to eat chalk and feel good. Or I remember the good old days when I would sit in the bathroom and lock the door, and then I had the place to myself. You don't think that way, but the association that comes up is almost in your body, and therefore all of a sudden you feel hungry. Craving is a way of saying you are hungry. You really are getting hungry or you're really getting a, a bona fide stomachache. But what that is, is just your body resorting to reinforcers in the past, which made you feel less anxious or less upset. So I, this is reductionistic. And this is also in the sense 
dehumanizing, if you wish, if you think that human functioning is based on some kind of more sophisticated relationship to your environment and to your world. When I say more sophisticated, I see more sophisticated than a one-year-old or a two-and-a-half-year-old. And by this kind of reductionism, we're saying that it really is the same process, just they dress up these reinforcers in clothes that make them seem so much more um, worked out or human or non-animal, et cetera. So, so I can tell you, you know, what, what, what the light bulb went out over my head, because one of the things, I'll tell you what I do, and in, in, sometimes in times of difficulty, besides turning to a, a, you know, a dove bar or some sort of luscious piece of chocolate, what I sometimes find myself doing is cracking open uh, a sugya, cracking open a gemara, cracking open uh, a shiltas the Chaygon and a, and a beautiful piece of tyro. And what, what you're telling me is that that is also a sense feeling it's, it's almost like an anal sense of accomplishment right because it's 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 being able to feel that now i've acquired something and i can feel good that there's something i now know that i didn't know before there's a challenge that i was able to overcome that i wasn't i i, I didn't have before and that pat on the back that i give myself is ultimately tethered back to those pats on the back that my parents gave me or at least my sense of an independent self when I could just stay and close the door in the bathroom and be my own person. So I think that's, I'm just restating what you said. And in that way, you know, it really is uh, a, uh, a very eye-opening uh, uh, understanding. And, 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 you know, I have no problem accepting even what you're saying to be true because it, it, God's still giving us, you know, as the, the giver of the Torah understood what these essential stages of human life would be. And he gave us this gift that could satisfy both. On one hand, it could satisfy, you know, I guess your, your, your anal uh, aspect of, of acquiring and having and being this, this bucky and in, 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 in information. But at the same time, it does intellectually change you and, and turn you into a more moral and thoughtful person at the same time. Okay, so I think that you have the mahalach, the approach straight down, but we have to go, I mean, you've just forced this into a PG a conversation instead of just a G conversation, because we talked only about the first two stages. There are more stages, and I'm going to broach the other one, and I'm, tr- I'm going to try to do it with the kid gloves, because I'm not interested in getting to a topic which is a huge topic on its own. Um, and that is that the next stage, after the oral and the anal stage, is what we call the phallic stage, okay? And that is the stage where kids get involved with being a boy and being a girl and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And it's quite mystifying to little kids. And it's also quite stressful because there are all kinds of messages there which they confound with being a boy and being a girl, getting punished, not getting punished, what father does, what mother does, and what the... um, these are called, by the way, psychosexual stages. I, I need to define that. Sexual here does not mean sexual. It means body. What parts of the body, what aspects of the body become reinforcers? And that, that basically is pegged physiologically that at first there's development around the... Around the yeah. So essentially, when we say psychosexual, we mean to say that there are certain reinforcers based on physiological development in the body, and they translate themselves into certain issues, shall we say, that the child 
um, fixates on as a way of reinforcing or feeling good or feeling bad, which is the converse. So what happens really after the anal stage is the stage of finding out things. There are some secrets out there they are not talked about, especially in, in our society, in all societies, they are taboo. We don't really talk about it, but it becomes an area of concern for kids. And essentially what I need to say, not in a disparaging way, but in almost a benevolent way, the way he described it, that these are God-given, shall we say, um, flowcharts for us to be able to dress up and to move beyond our basic primal functioning into um, areas that are much more representational and much more transcendent, getting into more um, um, philosophical, intellectual, and spiritual domains, is that what dominates kids after the anal stage is really finding out of what's really going on, looking for truth, saying, no, no, that's not really what's happening. Something else is happening. And that's why really they come up with all kinds of fantasies that we have to dress up or, or sublimate. So really what I need to say, if you want to talk in terms of what are you doing reinforcement-wise, I think when people get involved in figuring out what you call a sugya or a scientific or a math problem and get satisfaction from that, which is as potent, if not more potent, than getting a chocolate bar or running to the bathroom, what you really are doing is dealing with issues of discovery, finding out um, even identity in the sense, but leave identity alone for now, finding out what's really true and what's not really true, which is really the, if you want to talk about it in Baruch al-Bitchaktana, that's the origins or that harkens back to the curiosity or the sexual curiosity or the body curiosity, if you wish, of five-year-olds. So yeah, so yes, your road, your, your general roadmap is correct, but I wouldn't put that on the oral and the anal unless you then get involved in copyright. This is my idea, and nobody can steal it from me. But if it's a question of I just took something that's confusing that makes no sense, and I made sense out of it, any five-year-old sees that as his or her mission in life. Something's going on over here. I have to figure it out. And then if it's handled properly, it eventually ends up with being able to have decent relationships with other people because you figured out really what the person is saying. They're being cynical. They mean something else. But what's really bothering mommy is the way something else is happening. It has nothing to do with me. That means getting an understanding of, of what's really going on versus what appearances are. And that's really the next psychosexual stage. It's actually the final one, which then gets us into all relationships and into adulthood. So I love what you're saying, especially about how the uh, territorial aspect in many ways asserts itself. You know, and you've seen this in Rosh Hashivas and teachers as well. I mean, even in the academic world, people who who produced great monographs, but then guarded it uh, with with fierce uh, determination yes. in terms of, yeah, that was mine. That was mine. And, and it's sort of this amazing mixture, as you say, of the anal and the psychosexual stage, as far as what you're saying. Um, can, let's go back another stage. Let's go back where we started to sort of wrap everything up here. Um, when you're referring to the, um, let's talk about our, our, our fellow who uh, gets upset and when he goes home, he picks up the Ben and Jerry's. Uh, there's Rollo bars everywhere in this house uh, to make him feel good. Um, could we say that that person who is 
obviously there's health issues of obesity and other things that he knows and, and, and he's constantly being bombarded how terrible that is. But can we say that the person's needs, the fact that he wants to be comforted so much means that there's some sort of uh, a psychological uh, intervention that could happen? In other words, when a person, you know, you, let me talk about fat shaming for a minute. You know, you have people who, uh, when they see someone who's obese, when they see someone who can't stop snacking, um, there's an attitude, and, and the person is very aware of that. We are so body conscious uh, today that when you see someone, the looks that you get, the the commercials on television that you see, it's clear that 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 you can that you are in a pariah status, but yet you you still indulge yourself because of how it makes how it makes you feel. Is there some way? back in that early stage is there some is, is there some way that a, a psychologist not yourself because you're, you're you're above that but is there something that a therapist can do to sort of help that person you said indulging it a little bit is okay but what about the people who have moved beyond that the ones that uh, like i said it's almost like their go-to thing is there some way they could cure themselves of this need to be comforted so often let's first talk what the problem is the, other than getting into physical trouble um, from eating, the problem is really one of avoiding the more, um, shall we say, adult-like aspects of a situation and reducing it. For instance, you insult me, I eat one bowl of ice cream. I lose my job, I eat five bowls of ice cream. I get divorced, I eat 10 tubs of ice cream. That is not the way to do it. There's, and that would Eating ice cream is great because it reduces the stress level, but if that becomes your only way of reducing the situation, you're not in the real world. You're in the um, one-year-old or two-year-old equivalent of the real world, and that's not very functional. That's the problem, okay? Other than medical problems or where you end up ha having colitis from forcing yourself to go to the bathroom or you end up overeating or hypoglycemic or whatever it is, the issue is you're not dealing with this situation. So that is a problem. And um, I would say that the method here is not to attack the stick, but to attack the actual um, person carrying the stick. You don't attack, hey, stop eating so much. No, the question is, what else is going on here that's driving it there? And can you address those issues in other way and other meaning more functional? Because we're assuming not that, not for someone who's getting sick, where we say you want to address, address this in a way that you don't get an ulcer or you don't get a heart attack, but let's address this. This can be addressed this so that the real issues that are bothering you at the adult level are being dealt with. So sure, there are ways to deal with it, but obviously people who are driven towards getting to these more primitive solutions are people who are not very functional at dealing with it at a more sophisticated level. Um, there is one other option. If you had a particularly traumatic time in feeding time, if you had, let's say, very maladaptive caretakers who would starve you for many, many hours, um, or maybe you had someone like God forbid, who died and left you alone for many hours until you were close to starving to death and then you got rescued or you had, let's say, a, a drug-addicted parent who would feed you just intermittently, let you starve, that becomes such a potent reinforcer that it doesn't really mean that you 
can't address the adult issues. It's just that 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 reinforcer is so strong that it overshines everything. Or people who had particularly horrible times. I mean, I can tell you two examples that I know. Um, I know one patient of actually a colleague of mine's that had a horribly harsh time at toilet training. She was punished severely to the point that you would call it child abuse without a question. And she obviously became an anal character and bathrooming and, and control and dieting was her way. Dieting, not in terms of eating, but just in terms of body shape, became her you know mantra throughout life. But what she did as a way of countering that is that she said when she, when she raised her child, no diapers at all, but newspapers all over the apartment saying, I'm not going to push my kid around when he's ready. He's going to get sphincter control and get that. And that sounded very, very nice, right? She's not pushing him at all. The kid ended up with the same problem because it was so excessive. It's the equivalent to parents who just stuffed you with food. They produce as badly a fixation, so to speak, in the area of eating as those who starve you. And ditto here, those who punish you severely produce as much as a problem in that stage as that. And then if we may just get into the R-rated stuff, parents who are extremely harsh in stamping out any sign of sexual or body curiosity produce as many problems in their children, or as far as I'm concerned, produce fine patients for psychoanalysis as do those who are just totally um, tabulous in their handling such kinds of issues. They're overly, um, um, shall we say, exposed, even literally, and they overly get into topics which are totally inappropriate for five-year-olds or six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. They will have extreme problems in terms of identity, in terms of knowing who they are, in terms of knowing what relationships mean. So all of these are double-edged swords. And what we really have over here, the Rambam talks about it as the golden mean, but so does Freud and so does everybody else, that fixation, so to speak, in other words, getting hung up on a certain mode of primitive functioning is caused either by an overindulgence or an overstressing of a certain function to the exclusion of others, or and over um, repressing, they both do the same thing. So, okay. if, so if a person uh, goes through therapy or uh, has a good friend who can uh, enlighten them what they think the source of this is, do you think that knowledge will set them free and allow them to uh, move beyond the type of this, let's say when I asked the question I asked you, the clearly destructive type of behavior, uh, is it possible mentally just to know, since I know where this comes from, that can unchain me, and then I could use the, 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 the power, uh, incredible uh, courage that human beings always show to move beyond that? Um, um, so I would say schematically, yes practically no, because we're made up of two parts. We have um, our knowledge, so to speak, and we have our cluster of feelings or emotions. And there is very little of a gateway that connects the two. So even though I can intellectually know exactly what's happening, that doesn't really get through to my feelings, because when anxiety threatens, the reinforcer kicks in no matter what you think. And there's no matter what's happening, you have a situation of life and death, you have someone, this 
person and James Bond and he's plotting what to do. And to calm down, he takes out his chocolate bar. He knows what's going on. He's quite sophisticated. He's killed quite a few people or flown quite a few missions. But still, push comes to shove. It's the bodily reinforcement because that's conditioned. Conditioning is not thinking. You don't have to think saying, I'm going to take a chocolate bar so I feel better. It's automatic, just like the gag reflex or the blink reflex. You don't think when you blink, well, this item is coming at me. It's coming at my eyes. Maybe I should close my eyes. No, you do that before you think. That's the same way you reinforce the work. So basically you say uh, you have a, a, um, a psychoanalyst, a therapist or a friend. I think a therapist will probably do a little, little bit of a better job because basically they know it's not a shuttle because otherwise you can take 10 minutes, write out the sentence for the person, say, here's your diagnosis. No, you have to work it through. So say, okay, so now let's imagine we're in this situation. What can we do? And push comes to shove. The person still will have a tendency to want to just slip into that reinforcer, but they'll be able to marshal some other ego strengths to say, well, maybe this is not the best time for now or whatever. Still can have a Snickers bar. That's okay. But let's not overdo it because that's not going to solve the problem. So the hassle is with people who are intelligent and understand this, but are not in the business, is to think mistakenly that it is an intellectual problem, that it's a problem of knowledge. And it is because people are unaware of what's going on, but that's not sufficient. What you really need over here is a way of coping that you, despite the tendency, you get over it. And I need to tell you, there are radical behaviorists around who push it to the other extreme that say, you don't even have to know it. There are radical behaviors that will condition you to do other things when you have a situation and not behave maladaptively, and they will not even explain what they're doing. They just teach you, aha, this happens, you do this. Like if you ever heard relaxation training, you basically just condition a response in the body, which is counter to your maladaptive behavior. And you don't even know, nobody gives you a lecture. You don't, they claim you don't need the lecture because the final proof is in the emotional realm that's not intellectual at all. So you're right in terms of planning it. I just think that a friend or even self-insight will do you nothing unless you go through the reconditioning to say, okay, so when this happens, well, I'll stop and say, is what could I have done differently? Or what can I do now that would then change the situation rather than just make me feel better? Those Mm -hmm. kinds of stick. And that gets a little bit more into a twist of conditioning, which is rationally emotive, but it still is conditioning you to start thinking automatically or start doing automatically different things than the maladaptive regressive stuff you've been doing. And, and I, you know, I, I heard in the last uh, paragraph of your discussion here, um, I didn't, I didn't mean to say it was long winded, sort of a little subtle, <laughs> to, to say a, a subtle dig to biofeedback therapy, which I don't know if it's as popular as it was 25 years ago, but I think that's what you were talking about. The biofeedback therapy um, in many ways was is, is sort of similar to what you were uh, discussing. And I know that- yes. And I don't necessarily mean to dig against it because I've seen it be extremely effective, extremely effective. Mm-hmm. But, but for most people that also have various thoughts tied in, to when you do something, you have to basically deal with um, coming up with thoughts which might be more adaptive rather than saying, forget about it altogether. But still, yeah. I would say in terms of efficacy, behavioral um, uh, um, approaches 
um, work much faster and much more effectively, I'd say, because behavioral um, um, conditioning doesn't require that much sophistication. It's almost technical. Whereas being a good analyst and figuring out what problems come from is not that technical. You have to really know what you're doing. And that takes a lot more, uh, shall we say, intelligence and insight, which mm-hmm. is not as trainable. You can train people to do methods pretty well if they're, the, 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 um, the options are fairly finite and discrete. So I, I okay. sent quite a few patients for behavioral therapy when we're dealing with very concrete situations. And their aim is not, the, if the aim of the patient is not really to understand what's happening, just to get rid of the problem, behavioral conditioning works very nicely. Mm. So let me really end here with, so so anyway, we hope that uh, this little uh, discussion has given you a whole new uh, attitude for the Hanukkah get-together, the Hanukkah guilt, all the way to the playing with your children, enjoying them. Just remember, every behavior that you do, every thing that you do uh, is etched in their consciousness and somehow banks on one of these pri- <laughs> these primal stages. And again, part of the great mystery and excitement and challenge of life is seeing how it plays out and, and managing it when it comes. Shmuel, thanks a lot. We'll catch you <clears throat> next time. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.